0: has come early in June for NBA fans because the draft is now one day away. We're going to get you up to speed on what teams need, absolutely need a good draft, what players to watch on draft night, who the big sleepers are, who's going to have a big impact next NBA season, but we also have a special guest later on in the show, a former GM of the Phoenix Suns, executive for the Boston Celtics, former international scout, Odyssey insider, Ryan McDonough. So, everybody's putting out mocks. There's a million of them. But I'm not mocking. Like, that's that's pointless. That's something for you to read, right? So, we already know who the top three are, right? It's Chet. Probably go number two. It's Jabari, who really rose up through his time at Auburn. And it's Paolo from Duke. You don't know these names? What are you doing listening? Right? What are you doing? Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga. Seven feet tall, slim reaper that he is, one hundred and ninety-five pounds, probably one hundred and eighty-five pounds. Uh, could be, could be something between Kristaps Porzingis and Kevin Durant. Paolo Bencaro, unguardable, six feet 10, 250 pounds. He looks like a regular human being that has been like expanded three times the size of that. Like every proportion is correct, but he's just huge. And Jabari Smith. Inter- interesting, intriguing prospect, can play the defensive side really well, can shoot the ball really well, and I think he'll work wherever he goes. That's all we're doing for the mocking. I'll give you some players to watch that are sleepers or wild cards later on in the show, but I think that what's most important are our current NBA teams. Who's currently there and who needs to have an absolutely phenomenal draft night or free agency, including the draft, considering what they have available in order for this franchise to move forward. We've got teams that are in inflection points, people, and decisions need to be made. All of these teams we're gonna talk about are teams that have draft capital. We're not talking about teams like the Lakers or the Nets that are at crossroads as well. We're talking about teams with lottery picks. Who's gonna be able to maximize their lottery picks with the situation that they're in? Number one for me, and this is in no particular order because I don't want to be biased, right? So I'm going to say one team before the team that I think is number one needs to kill the draft. Number number one on this list, not most important team, but teams whom for this is a very important draft, Charlotte Hornets, number one. This team needs a good draft, even more now, given that Kenny Atkinson was supposed to take the job as head coach, one of the best talent developers in the league and he abandoned ship at the very last moment you know that there's a franchise in disarray when you had a coach and he backed out and said it was for family reasons like he's staying in golden state and rumors are it's because he wasn't allowed to bring his own assistants i even heard some little side jokes from other nba insiders where they're like yeah some owners in certain nba teams they were Some won't even let their coaches choose their own assistants. They didn't say who it was, but I already heard that rumor, and I was like, that's obviously what they're talking about. So what does this mean for a team with two first-rounders this year? If MJ can't keep his hands out of the cookie jar, man, I don't know. Right? Is he going to get involved again? Are 13 and 15 going to be MJ's picks? Or are they going to be Mitch Kupchak's pitch? They chose uh, James Booknight last year. James Booknight at 13, again, I'll just say this, he didn't perform up to the expectations that you would think a 13 pick would make. There's a lot of impact guys, defensively, offensively, that came in later than James Booknight and really contributed to the team, a la Herb Jones. Hayward's got to be moved if you want to max out Miles Bridges. And that probably means sending one of your firsts along the way, right? So you've got to probably send first to move Hayward in order to max Miles Bridges. Booknight was your lottery pick. He didn't turn out. You got 13 and 15 again. You need to figure it out. You've been in the play in two years now. You had the worst defense in the league. You don't even have a coach before the draft. I don't even know what kind of coaching style you're going to have. There's a lot of questions about whether Mike D'Antoni is going to come in. Okay. One of the worst defenses in the league. Can't protect the rim, Mike D'Antoni. One of these things do not fit like the other. If you're trying to fix that, I don't know what you're doing, right? You're probably going to have to use 13 or 15 to get rid of Hayward. So it means whoever you get at 15 needs to bring value. To me, the number one guy that they can get, I scanned through all the drafts, all the mocks, all the players, all that. Number one player that Charlotte Hornet fans should be rooting for them to select. And maybe they keep both. Maybe they keep 13 and 15, and they figure out a way to move Hayward without those. You need Mark Williams from Duke. Need him. Great rim protector. Probably a more mature, smart, smarter, higher IQ, immediate impact guy than Rob Williams. He's like a a smarter, more mature Rob Williams. Seven-footer, can protect the rim. And I think that makes the most sense. You could probably get him at 15. 15. Because you know that Cleveland at 14 isn't selecting another big man. If you end up keeping number 13, I could see them going after a perimeter player as well. If you could get, say, a Jeremy Soshan, if he falls down there, I like that. If you can get a Dyson Daniels, if he falls there, find some guy that can defend on the perimeter. Because right now you ain't got it like that. You got Kelly Oubre and you got Hayward and it's just not working out. The most important team that needs to kill the draft, in my opinion, is Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Not because it's my team either. It's not because of that. Because this team says they want to contend right now. You're talking about a team that's got top seven, seventh pick in the draft. Literally, I read an article so disrespectful. They said the only two good teams that are drafting in the lottery are San Antonio. And I forget the other, one. but it wasn't Portland. And I'm like, what do you mean? We went to the Western Conference Finals a couple of years ago. We tried to tank. This team tanked on purpose. Right? Okay. So they need to hit the draft out of the park. They need to come out the blocks. It's moving pieces on draft night, moving the pick all together. There is an urgency. They have promised Dame they are building a contender and retooling around him. They can't fuck around and get in a project. What do you mean? Like, Dame's going to be like, You just drafted Shaden Sharp? (laughs) Okay. Like, when is he going to contribute? Because I'm 30 in my mid 30s. Portland needs viable viable pieces yesterday. So, and I don't think it's Caljan Blevins that's going to contribute yesterday, right? Joe Cronin, the GM, the good thing about him is he's valuing length, athleticism. He said he values the ability to play multiple positions and guard multiple positions, uh, defend on the perimeter, switch everything, shoot threes. That's a good start in terms of how you think about guys. My favorite player at number seven? Benedict Matherin. I love him. I've always loved him since the beginning of the season, since October. I've been all up in his DMs being like, come to Portland, come to Portland, come to Portland. <laughs> he shot up the board in the low double digits from the low double digits now to the top five picks. So I don't even know if he's going to be there. He might go to Detroit. I have no idea. He might go to Indiana. I don't know. Based on Joe Cronin's comments, I can see this team either taking maybe a Dyson Daniels. I could also see them taking Shaden Sharp even though he's a project just because he's long, and maybe they're lying. Maybe they are going to shop game. I have no idea. But Dyson Dyson Daniels is long. He's athletic. He has great court vision. He can pass like Josh Giddy. He can defend. He can shoot. As for Shaden, he could end up being a superstar. A lot of chatter also around Portland trading number seven for OG Ananobi and some pieces, maybe also trying to get that uh, user 2025 first-round pick from the Bucks along with the, the pick in the 50s to try to make a three-team trade work where you get O.G. Ananobi and John Collins. That would be something, wouldn't it? That would be something. But there's a lot of recent chatter that Portland's keeping their seventh pick. Again, we're going to talk to Ryan McDonough about this later on in the show, but teams are out here lying recklessly. So that could be very easily a lie. I could see that being something that they're just taking people off the scent and trying to make it sound like, they have their pick in mind so that that pick seems more valuable to other teams. Another team uh, that I think needs to really kill this is the Wizards. Huge offseason for the Wizards. Much like Boston, they haven't been able to find that elusive point guard after John Wall got injured and then got shipped away. They tried out Spencer Dinwiddie. He wasn't really a point guard. They tried out Isch Smith. They tried out Raul Nettle. They tried out Cassius Winston. They tried out Aaron Holiday. The list goes on and on. They tried out Bradley Beal. Is Bradley Beal the point guard for the Wizards of the future? I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. A lot of chatter right now about the Wizards moving up to the number four spot for Jaden Ivey. Or trading three first rounds, this 10th pick and two first in the future, for SGA or DeJounte Marie. What do all those guys have in common? They're not really point guards. They're not; they're combo guards. They're score-first guards. Pair that with what Tommy Shepard said yesterday during uh, whatever media availability it was. He said, listen, I'm traditional. I like point guards to set the offense and try to get everyone involved and move the ball because you see the results. When we move the ball, we're pretty good. Let me ask you this. Which three of those is setting the table? Which three of those is getting everybody the ball? You think Jaden Ivey's passing the ball? No. Jaden Ivey doesn't even know how to pass the ball when he's driving and kicking effectively. No. So to me, what, what the Wizards should do is they should probably trade that pick for a piece. Go after Tyus Jones. Trade the number 10 pick to Memphis. Try to figure out a way to get something like that. Also, go after Jalen Brunson in free agency. If you could get a Johnny Davis, maybe sit him, and then go after Jalen Brunson or Tyus Jones. And even, here's a little crazy thought, because he'll be available in December in terms of playing. Ricky Rubio makes a ton of sense. Ricky Rubio is the perfect playmaker, set the table, get everybody involved, can put up 30. He and Bradley Beal together, if, if Ricky Rubio was fully healthy, and I know that's a big if, they would be really good together. And now you've got to ask, too, the big issue, of course, of what, what is Bradley Beal going to do? How this draft ends up, what they end up doing in free agency, will absolutely play a factor in how Bradley Beal sees and views the future of this franchise. He And you don't need to do much. You don't really. Because he already is so delusional. Because he wants to believe. He wants to believe that the Wizards will compete for a championship while he's in his prime. The answer is that everyone, including Wizards fans know, is that it's never going to happen. Bradley Beal will never be on a contender in the the District of Columbia. Never. Not going to happen. Doesn't matter what happens. You add coups and this and that. Does not matter. Ricky Rubio, coups, Beal, not a contender. And he's a loyal dude. His loyalty is creating a pair of rose-colored, delusional glasses about what this team can do. If Beal and when Beal... Resigns signs for the max contract. Now you got a whole other set of problems because you're paying him 60-something million dollars a year and you're trying to build a winner, just like Portland, trying to keep Dame happy. If he tests the waters and heads somewhere else, much easier scenario. You sign and trade him, Get a bunch of picks, get some little young assets, and it's a full-on rebuild. You know the direction of your franchise. Right now, you're trying to do two things at once, which is lie to Bradley Beal and tell him it's a contender and kind of make him happy and appease him while simultaneously collecting young assets. Some mocks have the Wizards taking Johnny Davis at 10. I don't hate that, but again, it would not shock me if Tommy Shepard made another big, splashy move on draft day like he did with Russell Westbrook, moving him for all those pieces. KCP, Coos. Another team that needs to do something, Kings. Kings is at a crossroads. They have a very desirable pick at number four, but the luck or unlock of the draw makes this draft a three-player race. Jabari from Auburn, Chet from Gonzaga, and Paolo from Duke. The best players remaining happen to be guards, which is exactly what the Sacramento Kings keep drafting and then having to figure out how to play them all. So the issue is, do the dra- do the Kings do the whole best available thing and then take a guard like they've done before and take Ivy? Or do they get this NBA ready-made player in Keegan Murray, a forward who has less upside? Somebody said to me last night, which is exactly what I've been telling you, Brock, that Keegan Murray seems like Kuzma in terms of his upside. If Kyle Kuzma, and I think that's a big-ass reach, like Keegan Murray will never, let me just say this. I'll stamp. I'll put my stamp on this. I don't like to say what players can be and who they can become if they get developed, but I think that there is almost less than a zero percent chance that Keegan Murray becomes as good as Kyle Kuzma. And if your abs exactly, and if your upside doesn't even reach, because they've got the same body comps, they've got the same style of play. Kuzma is absolutely a better athletic specimen than uh, our man Keegan Murray, in my opinion. He's also a little bit old. And, and our man Kyle Kuzma wasn't a top five pick. He was drafted in the 20s, wasn't he? And listen, maybe it was because Kuz went to Utah and Iowa was this force. But holy shit, if, you're, if your absolute maximum ceiling is Kuz, I don't Let me tell you who's doing sneakers the best in the game right now. That's New Balance. The two-way V4 featuring this groundbreaking use of technology with fresh foam. It's called Fuel Cell, creating this combination that we love of rebound and cushioning. Fresh foam offers unparalleled cushioning for maximum comfort your entire game from start to finish. The upper construction features this lightweight textile that reduces weight which we all need, I know I do, while remaining supportive and breathable. Hard to find that combo. The two-way V4 gives you the tools that you need to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way V4 at newbalance.com. No necessarily if I'm taking a top spot. Welcoming into the show, we've got our guy, Ryan McDonough. We're going to be asking him some of the inside baseball questions on the draft. I have not spoken ever to Ryan, so I'm happy to meet you. I'm super excited. Uh, former GM of the Phoenix Suns. Spent a decade working for the Boston Celtics, where he was everything from an international scout to assistant GM to my man, Danny Trader, Danny Ange. Currently, our Odyssey Basketball Insider—that's where I'm from. Odyssey Basketball Insider cannot wait to ask him a ton of questions. How are you doing, sir?
1: Hey, hey, Tristan, I'm doing well.
0: I want to because there's a lot of people doing mocks. I'm not really too interested in. And like debating who's going to go where or who's the best fit where I'm really interested in the process of of drafting and just kind of how it all works from someone who's been there and has been there with a bunch of different teams. First and foremost, there's this big debate about team needs versus best available. What is your stance on, on that? And is that a trend that sort of changes over time? And, and what are some examples of, of ways that door one works and doesn't work and door two works and doesn't work?
1: Yeah, really good question. I, I think the first thing you have to ask as a franchise is if player X in the draft is better, and he probably won't be better immediately. Obviously, these, these things take some time. But if, they, if he has a chance to be better than anybody on our roster, we should probably draft player X because we can move the other guys on the roster. You know, if if he's that good, if he has a chance to be a special transcendent player. Um, Now, there there are some arguments the other way. I mean, one of the things that, we get criticized for, and you know, I certainly had some involvement with, was uh, DeAndre Ayton with the number one pick in, in Phoenix. Um, thought process at the time, organizationally, right or wrong, and keep in mind I was fired the following preseason, so there may have been some disagreement, but uh, was that we had a young backcourt star in Devin Booker, offensively gifted, um, you know, struggled a little bit defensively and rebounding. He certainly improved in those areas, but the thought process was uh, Devin in the backcourt, Ayton in the front court. Uh, Michael Bridges, who we later acquired on the wing, um, you know, uh, people can nitpick and they certainly have about the Luka Doncic versus Ayton pick. And I understand that. And I, you know, I, I take responsibility for that. Um, obviously, the Suns were in the finals a year ago and won 64 games. So, so that's why it's so hard, Tristan. That's why I think people on the fan side, or even some of the media side don't realize as much, you are picking for a team. You know, you're not just picking in a vacuum individually. And when people go back and do redrafts and things like that, um, the context and the roster at the time is important because, you know, the reality is once we get in October and training camp starts, you have to hand the coach the ball and say, figure out how to play these guys and put together a functional team. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's the most talented player. You'd want that. But uh, there is some context and nuance to that as well.
0: Uh, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I think one of the greatest steals in that draft was Mikhail Bridges. Can you, can you give me just a little bit of insight into how that all went down if outside of what's already kind of been written about?
1: Yeah, it was a really unusual deal, um, Trista, just because Philadelphia 76ers, who had the 10th pick, drafted Bridges with the intention of keeping him. Yeah, uh,
0: I, I was there for that. that yeah, we, I was you, at you, Barclays.
1: Okay. And and you know McHale's history and what it was like at Barclays. His mother worked for the franchise. He won multiple national championships at Villanova. He's a Philadelphia kid. And it seemed, you know, on paper, at least to me, like a very good fit between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. But but Philly was big game hunting, I think. And we had a draft pick, um, a future first round pick that we got in 2015 for Goran Dragic from Miami that was unprotected. And then we had the 16th pick in the 2018 draft as well. So, it's a bit unusual because, you know, I called Philly's front office. Uh, we were chasing picks up in that range because one of the things that I, I think people don't talk about enough, Trista, is there are tiers and gaps in the draft. And what I mean by that is, you know, the value of, of each player to the next is not always even, right? Sometimes it is close. Uh, sometimes there's a gap between players. Sometimes there's a gap between tiers of players. So that's what teams do. It's there's like most teams use a tiering system rather than let's just rank them one to 60 or 100 or whatever. So... Um, with us, we, we felt the, the, the group of players in that late lottery, um, you know, say 8 to 14 range, were going to be significantly better than who was available or we thought was going to be available at 16. So anyway, so long story relatively short, um, Philly drafted Bridges. Uh, I was on the phone with them, said, is there anything we can do? They said no a- at the time and said, OK, we're coming back at 16. We like Bridges a lot. We'd give you some value. We'd give you 16 plus, and we can discuss what the plus is. But uh, are there players you know you guys are potentially interested in? And they said, yeah, one in particular. But obviously, they, they didn't tell us who it was. So fast forward to 14, 15 pick that range, uh, we reengage with them. And Zaire Smith, the forward out of Texas Tech, was still on the board, who they liked. Um, Obviously, Zaire's had some injury issues and other health issues that have derailed his career, um, but that plus the the future Miami pick, that was how that deal got done. And, and this is funny in hindsight, especially given how well Mikel's done and how well the team has done, Trista, but I wasn't really looking forward to calling the kid and his mom, who were excited yeah. about being in Philly. And his mom works for the franchise and saying, I know you thought you were going to stay at home, but what do you think about heading a couple thousand miles to the Southwest and becoming Ooh, a Phoenix Sun?
0: That's wild. Another thing I think that, People are interested in is, and I guess the context around it are players like Shaden Sharp, players like Jaden Hardy. So two different paths, right? Both of those guys were consensus lottery picks. Shaden doesn't end up playing a minute for Kentucky. Jaden Hardy goes to the G League. Shaden Sharp's kind of like a wild card in terms of his draft hasn't, hasn't fell. I mean, we're not really sure. It, maybe he's top five, maybe he slips to mid, maybe post lottery, but Jaden Hardy seems to have fallen off a cliff in terms of consensus draft picks. Is, is, should players that are already deemed, Patrick Baldwin Jr. is another one, deemed to be a, a lottery pick, is there some sort of debate now on, in terms of whether they should actually play in college or go to the G League or go the Shaden Sharp path?
1: Well, I, I speak from a you know, former executive's perspective. I think they should play somewhere. I, I think it, it's it's one thing to try to manipulate draft stock and you know potentially hide, you know things like that. But at the end of the day, as you know, Tristan, in fact, in just a couple of weeks, they're going to be off on a court in Las Vegas with ESPN and NBA TV and all these groups there, and they're going to have to perform. So yeah. I, I think, especially as a teenager, taking a year off and not playing is not something I would advise. Uh, now, I, I really like what the NBA has done with the Jew League Ignite. That was one of my... Uh, criticisms of the league are things I think the league could have done better earlier instead of letting, and I'm going back a ways here, but instead of letting Brandon Jennings go play in Italy and Emmanuel Moutier go play in China, uh, recently LaMelo Ball go play in Australia, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of us um, executives in the league were saying, why don't we keep these guys here? It's it's better um, from a fan and marketing perspective. It's better for the players developmentally. It's easier to recruit and evaluate them. And this is what the players want. Those guys, did, you know, 18, 19 years old, didn't want to go live overseas by themselves and, and things like that. So I bring it up because I think the league's done a terrific job with the G League Ignite. Um, Just look at last year's draft. I believe they had two of the top seven picks. Uh, Jalen Green, who I think is going to be a a star among the scoring leaders in the NBA someday. And then Jonathan Kaminga, who, you know, talented young developmental player for the Warriors, got some run in the playoffs on on, on the NBA champion. Um, And this year, Dyson Daniels will be another lottery pick. Um, So I, so I think it's, you know, it's good to have options. Um, You know, Shaden Sharp situation was unique. And and, and the final, I I guess point I'll make on, on Shaden Trista is that, he is the kind of player as an executive that keeps you up at night. And what I mean by that is it scares you to take him because you don't have a body of work. And it also scares you to pass on him because of the talent. Uh, you know, he's talented enough. His highlight film is incredible that that kid could, could end up being the best pick in the draft. But that, that's why it's scary and hard to be an executive at this point. It'd be impossible to say either way where his career ends up.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I would imagine that as a GM job security makes that decision-making tree a little bit more complex. I'm curious, why do some guys skyrocket after the tournament has been over and we've gotten through the combine, we've gotten through team workouts. So it, it seems like nothing's really happened. Right. And you got, take a guy like Matherin Matherin was like in the 10, it's like 11 to 15 range. And then all of a sudden now, even though he looked awesome at Arizona, went to the tournament, looked good there too. To go, why, why do some guys fall significantly and what, why do some guys skyrocket?
1: Really good question. And, and that's one of the things where as evaluators, you have to remind yourself and keep going back to the film because, so, you know, at the end of the day, the games are a little bit different. College or international versus the NBA, but it's still five on five basketball. And after the guy's season's over, he's not really playing five on five basketball. He's doing the right. individually. You know, they do a little five on five there, but the recent trend, which is unfortunate, is the top players don't play there in the five on five action. Um, and then the workouts, a lot of them, especially for the top prospects now, are individual, one on zero. Um, so that's one of the things as an executive, um, you have to manage expectations. Frankly, it can be really dangerous, especially when the people who don't do this year round, uh, like your coaches, your head coach in particular, He has a strong voice, strong personality and your owner, especially uh, a guy in an individual workout or, um, you know, as you know, Tristan, anybody can can one hour workout can look great or look horrible. It's not really reflective of who they are, um, but they can just have a great day or horrible day. That's just, you know, human nature. So that's why you have to rely on your process. Um, that's why you have to go back to the film and watch him play in games. Uh, and then also, you know, bake in some of the off season stuff with the combine with the individual workouts and, and hope you make the right decision. But uh, to answer your question, that is why, and, and I, I always kick get a kick out of when somebody says, oh, guys, stock is rising or falling or this or that. Well, In reality, it hasn't gone anywhere. Nothing has happened till tomorrow night. It's just, you know, media articles and things like that seem to manipulate players up and down. Uh, The teams just set their boards probably today as far as who they're going to draft. So anything that happened before today is I don't say irrelevant, but I, I think, you know, it gets more traction on the media side than it does when you're working for a team.
0: Wait, so the draft board gets created only the day before the draft?
1: Usually do it pretty late, Um, you know, probably the week of the draft. I'd be surprised if any teams did it well before this week, Um, because as you look around the league, um, teams are still working out players as recently as, you know, Monday or or Tuesday. Uh, I don't think we have any, you know, on Wednesdays, we sit here about 48 hours, excuse me, 24 hours before the draft. And the NBA does want the players to come to New York earlier now to do the media circuit and be available uh, prior to draft night. Um, but yeah, when I, when I was in Boston in particular, because the proximity to New York City, uh, the draft is, you know, either Madison Square Garden or now the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. We would try to get guys in Wednesday morning. I mean, wow. you know, the day before the draft and say, look, we know you're headed to the Northeast. We, we you know, we have to do some recruitment. We love your guy. Get him in here. It'll be the last workout. We'll take good care of him. We won't keep him long. We just want to see him one more time. And then we'll get him on the shuttle down to New York, um, you know, to, to be available for the draft. So. Um, that, that's why teams wait. And then also the medical piece of it, the intel, you want to go over that with your uh, trainers, doctors, people like that one more time, Trista, just to make sure, because um, that's the other thing that keeps you up at night. One of the things as an executive, you draft a guy who's not medically sound. He breaks down. Uh, that's probably one of the quicker ways to get fired. If, if you if you drafted somebody, especially if you should have known and you didn't do your job as far as knowing whether the guy was medically fit or not.
0: You mentioned ownership and a bunch of different voices uh, in the room. Can you kind of highlight just what it's like on draft night in a war room, all of the different people that are sounding off and, and kind of what your experience is like for people who haven't really had insight to that.
1: Yeah, it's certainly different with different franchises. I did probably 10 or 11 drafts in Boston and then five or six uh, in Phoenix. Um, You know, ideally what you'd want is the top decision makers in the room Uh, Your head of basketball, whether the president or GM, uh, his or her, you know, top lieutenants. Uh, And then same with the head coach uh you you know the top um, men and women who work under the head coach uh and then your owner and and really that's it i mean you you don't want a lot of you know theatrics and things like that a lot of teams have draft parties uh in both places in boston and phoenix we did a good job of keeping that separate because you know you have to concentrate and 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 be prepared to pivot for trades like the one we just discussed for mikhail bridges um you know you have to be prepared obviously to uh really do anything And what i mean by that is you want to move up in the draft Do you want to move down in the draft? Uh, Do you want to move out of the draft? Do you want to trade the pick for a player? Uh, Do you want to trade the pick for a future pick? You you know, all all that uh, happens in real time and is fluid. And then you also, even as the draft is going sometimes, have to be prepared in case there's a slider. So, you know, a guy you didn't think would be there, all of a sudden, you know, gravity sets in. The guy starts coming down. The player's nervous. His agent's calling you. And then you have to kind of go through your process to make sure you're prepared, You, you know, if he's on the board uh, when it comes up, so so really, the most important people generally are the head of basketball, the head coach, and the owner. And uh, you know, the ownership involvement depends on the franchise and how involved or uninvolved that guy wants to be.
0: How how many or what percentage of NBA teams have extremely a vocal and hands-on owners during draft night?
1: I'd say a growing percentage. Honestly, I, I think as franchise values escalate. And some new money comes into the league, um, you, know, you know, a lot of tech and uh, a younger group of owners, I guess. I, I think some, you know, talking to guys who have done the job longer than I have, uh, you know, some of the old guard owners, frankly, wouldn't come around for draft night. They just, you know, get get a call or you send them an email, maybe a fax back in the day. Say here, here are the guys we're looking at. Uh, you know, you try to prep them for we might take this guy or that guy. OK, sounds good. Um, that is getting, you know, less and less uh, standard, I, I guess. So they're more involved. So that's one of the challenges, you know, from a front office perspective or coaching perspective, I think from any job, right? Managing up, managing the boss and his his expectations. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's a trend that's going anywhere. Uh, let me put it this way. When the average franchise is selling for one and a half to two plus billion dollars and, and guys write a check at that level, I think they're going to want to continue to be involved.
0: That's really interesting, uh, especially considering I talked to somebody within the Golden State organization and I asked them and I said, why are you guys consistently draft so well and find value wherever you're at in the board. And, and they said, well, I think the main reason, and and they said a lot of people get it confused, like that there are certain teams that don't have great scouting departments or talent evaluation departments. There's pretty high level of of, of talent evaluation all over the league, but it really is a matter of whether an owner decides they want to allow uh, their those decision makers and evaluators to have agency to make those decisions. and, they said, you know, Joe Lacob has really given us a lot of agency to make those decisions. Um, what's it like when, you know, maybe you see a, a, a decision one way and an owner disagrees?
1: Well, it's a challenge for sure. And, and I'd reiterate that. I've heard the same about Joe Lacob. Um, you know, he, he's an owner who's very involved in the process. Obviously, he's, he's good at it. His team's been in the finals six of the last eight years and won one. Four championships, uh, and I give him a lot of credit, Trista, because as, as much as you know, any majority owner I can think of off the top of my head, he works. I mean, he, he goes around, he scouts games, he watches films. Yeah, he, he does this stuff. He loves it. <laughs> yeah. So where you get in trouble, you probably see where I'm going with this, but yep. where you get in trouble is when a guy does not do all that and, and bases it off of um, you know pre-draft workouts or highlight tapes or things like that and thinks he knows. Well, ultimately, he's the boss. So does he know? I you know, and and so it's hard. I, I think like anybody. When you disagree with, uh, you know, somebody you're working for, you need to be persistent and make your points and be respectful, uh, but also know when to relent, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, at the end of the day, unless you own a company or you're you're the CEO or whatever, you work for somebody, so you have to, you know, be, pick your spots. Uh, you hope that the the, the relationship you built up and the process you have is sound. Um, maybe if you have a track record of a success doing something, you can fall back to that. But um, yeah, I think anybody who's disagreed with the boss, uh, you know, goes through the same calculation. When do I push? How hard do I push? And when I realize it's not going to go my way or not likely to go my way, do I do I let go of the rope and relent, even if I don't agree with the ultimate decision?
0: I don't know if this happens at all, but when I um, disagree with someone for whatever decision, if I'm in a collaboration or I'm working for someone and I allow them to be the one and it does not work out or vice versa, it's pretty hard to not be like, well, you see, like, Frank Kaminsky really probably shouldn't have gone, like, whatever the, I, what was he, 13, 12, maybe? Um, oh, I,
1: I I say no so quickly because I know who was the 13th pick in the 2015 draft. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, it was Devin Booker, yeah, wasn't it? Was- so I think he came, I think uh, Frank Kaminsky ended up going right before Devin Booker, didn't he?
1: I think Frank went ninth or tenth yeah, ninth. range, maybe eleven. Uh, the direct pick before Devin was his college teammate Trey Lyles um, yeah. with the Utah Jazz, and and this is why it's so hard. I mean, Dennis Lindsey and his staff did a phenomenal job of building the Jazz when he was there. They drafted Donovan Mitchell in the late lottery and sure. Rudy Gobert uh, in the late first round. Uh, they had also drafted Rodney Hood, who played well at the time, uh, you know, late teens, early twenties there. So they had a perimeter heavy team. They yeah. wanted a front court guy. They went with Lyles over Booker. Uh, in a vacuum, that pick doesn't look great. But then you look at the totality of their draft. Like, yeah, Utah, you know, they've been one of the best teams in the league the last few years. So, so that's why the job is hard, uh, Tristan. And, and obviously one of the frustrations, as you can imagine, and players get this too, but as an executive, as a head coach, um, you know, for certain members of uh, fans in particular, certain members of the media, just pick at a mistake, you know, pick it a mistake rather than looking at the totality of it and saying, okay, it's, it's a hard job. And nobody, literally, whether, whether you're Red Auerbach or Jerry West, Everybody's going to make mistakes. Uh, you know, the guys who do it better make fewer mistakes and adjust to their mistakes quicker than everybody else.
0: So I heard this story yesterday and it, I believe it was Mark Stein talking about uh, the Dirk, uh, the Dirk uh, draft pick. And he was talking to the Mavericks organization and asked him how Dirk did. And they basically said that, that Dirk had a horrible workout. And Um, that this other kid, I forget who it was, really excelled. And, you know, it was disappointing because they liked Dirk and and all of this. Obviously, they end up loving Dirk. That was a complete lie. And Dallas, uh, the Mavericks organization, said to Mark, don't listen to us at all before draft because it's all lies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the whole disinformation campaign that goes on pre-draft from team to team in the media, how – you know, how front offices use media to sort of like take you off the scent and who's the best at it uh, in the league right now?
1: Yeah, all, all really good questions, uh, Trista. Look at it this way. If you work for a team, why would you want anybody to know what you're doing? Right. Yeah. You, you wouldn't want anybody to know what you're doing because there goes your competitive advantage. And, and in this draft that's coming tomorrow night, I think the Orlando Magic have done a good job injecting some uncertainty into the process. I mean, most people think they're going to take Jabari Smith, the forward out of Auburn. I think that's who they'll take. I wouldn't be shocked if they take Chet Holmgren personally. Uh, now we've seen on the betting markets, and I, and I know obviously given your multiple gigs with Odyssey, you follow the betting markets closely, Paulo Bencaro has skyrocketed. He was a distant third on the betting markets now he's moved up uh, just behind Chet Holmgren and in, in, into that number three slot, close to number two. Um, so I mean they're doing a good job of that. Now we'll see ultimately all that matters to the franchise is whether they draft the right guy and how he develops. Um, but yeah, if you're Orlando for example, you want people thinking you could take any of those three guys or maybe even Jaden Ivey because if a team falls in love with a player, you don't want them to say, okay, well. Uh, we know Orlando's going to take Jabari Smith, for example. Now let's just talk to Oklahoma City at two and try to trade for two, because we know who one is. You know, you want all your options to be open. Um, so, so that's why it happens. And uh, yeah, the disinformation—it's it, easy on the team side to spot a lot of times because when you see stuff about your own team, you say, "Well, that's not true." You, you know, it's, you, you know, obviously when when you're living it, when you're doing it. And uh, so, so what I would say, um, just from a general perspective for your fans is consider the sources, right? I I mean, some of the NBA's top newsbreakers, you and I know a lot of them, but Pedro Morjanovsky, Chiam Sharani, some of these guys say, it's probably pretty legitimate. Uh, If it's some guy with an egg with six followers on Twitter, you probably don't want to listen to that person if it is a person and not a bot. Um, So that's the challenge. You you know, teams will use it uh, to throw, you know, throw out smoke screens. Uh, Agents will use it to try to, as, as you talked about, players rising or falling, especially try to spike their guy's value right before draft time and prevent a free fall on the other side of it um so as far, as far as teams honestly i think just about every team does it um and then you know one of the new trends is interesting i guess this is more related to free agency but i was thinking of today is one of the things we're seeing now trista is teams using the media to set the expectations for free agents right so it's for example a recent example in the last 24 hours pj tucker opts out in miami with the heat uh, we see that uh, the Philadelphia 76ers will offer P.J. Tucker a three year, 30 million dollar deal and that the Miami Heat better be prepared to you know, pay that amount. So, so that's kind of the that's way. That's coming the game from the plays.
0: agent side, yes. That's got to that? be coming from the agent side, right?
1: I think it's both. Honestly, I, I think a lot of it probably is the agent side. Uh, you know, he's doing what's best for his player. That's his job. But a lot of it's the team side, too, where if, you, if you're P.J. Tucker. So I, I didn't know that team was interested in at that level. Let me start. I was thinking about maybe re-signing in Miami, you know, comfortable here. We just went to the Eastern Conference Finals almost – played in the NBA Finals at South Beach, no state income tax, all those kind of things. But Philly's interested. whether They have James Harden and and Joel Embiid. And, you know, so that's kind of the way the game is played now, as Draymond calls it, the new media. And I I don't think that's a trend that's going to change, not only with players, you know, doing media like Draymond and CJ McCollum, uh, but with teams and agents and even players leaking stuff to try to manipulate situations the way they want it to go.
0: What percentage of what we've seen rumor wise, specifically this year, considering it's a very wide open draft, would you consider to be uh, false?
1: Oh, more than half. You, you know, you know, I, I think you know a lot more than half.
0: That's a lot. Um,
1: but because you know, honestly, one of the things that's funny with um, NBA teams is they'll spend just about all their time talking about what every single other team's going to do, and then you know, and you ask somebody, "What are you guys going to do?" It's well, you know, I'm not sure because you know, because there's no reason to tell another team what you're going to do. You know, so so I think that perpetuates it. Um, you know where kids like the game telephone where you tell the person next to you and then they tell the next person. And, and by the time it got to the end of the line, the message was kind of similar, but like pretty different. That's kind of like the NBA where, you know, you hear this team is interested in this guy or may do this. And and then it gets, you know, parroted and maybe changed and tweaked a little bit. And by the time sometimes it hits the media or it gets back to you, you say, wait a minute, that's not what I it's. Kind of like what I heard, but, but different. So there is a lot of that in NBA front offices. And that's why I think in some ways, honestly, it's a little bit of a waste of time to do all that. If you're an NBA executive or with a team, just you know, focus on what you're doing, the draft, the film, the trades. Don't worry about it. you know, And just rely on your direct conversations with other teams rather than what you read on Twitter or some of these uh, NBA gossip sites.
0: If we're betting on the NBA draft, if you're in a state where you can bet, does it make sense to look at kind of the the past decision making lens of an organization and, and in terms of how they like to draft, how they like to construct a roster in terms of how they may actually select a good example that, that I, I guess I could use is like there's a lot of chatter around Toronto last year taking Jalen Suggs. But when you look at Masai Ujiri and what he likes to do, he likes to get these 6'6 six, six to 6'10 six, guys that can switch everything, that can also handle the ball, with exception, obviously, to Fred Van Fleet, which makes the Scotty Barnes pick make more sense. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: Yeah, re- really good question. And, and, and so... Um, I don't want to say disregard what I said up until this point, but if there is a time, especially if you're betting it, to rely on NBA insiders, um, you know, you know the, the elite NBA insiders, newsbreakers, it is in the next 24 hours from now up until the draft because um, that was one of the things that, that I got, you know, for Odyssey, I think it was in 2020, um, the draft, that they were going to take, the Chicago Bulls were going to take Patrick Williams with the fourth pick. I had a number of people tell me that. Uh, I think he would have gotten good value there in the betting markets because he was not a projected top four pick. Um, So I I say, you know, pay attention to some of that like now, you know, the other 363 or four days, it's less relevant, but uh, generally the mock drafts, uh, especially Jonathan Gavoni runs one for ESPN are pretty accurate close to the draft. So I I would pay attention to those. And then, yeah, to your point, the team history, uh, I'll give you another example. That's, um, you know, probably to me, the most interesting thing in the draft tomorrow night is the Sacramento Kings at four, they they have the Aaron Fox on the roster, uh, max player. They drafted Davion Mitchell a year ago, which was controversial because at that time they had Tyrese Halliburton on the roster. They traded Halliburton, obviously, for Sabonis uh, with Indiana. Will they do it again? Will they draft Jaden Ivey again? He, he's the best player on the board, in my opinion. Maybe may be the best player to come out of this draft. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I think there's maybe some value in a – if you can get those kind of odds. I don't know if you can, Trista, but like Jaden Ivey with the fourth pick. Not necessarily Jaden Ivey yep, two you seconds, but you know, with the fourth pick. Yep. Uh, I think there's probably some good value there because I think he probably does go number four, whether that's Sacramento or another team swooping in by a trade.
0: Uh, you were an international scout. I just watched The Hustle. Uh, with Adam Sandler. (laughs) So I have a newfound appreciation for all the miles that you've logged in your life and all of the room service and places you've woken up and you don't even know where you are. Um, I am curious, based on your international experience, how uh, places and regions and styles of play go in and out of style. You talk about a bunch of NBL guys or guys from Australia in general, like Giddy, that have ripped things up early, You know, made an immediate impact. How does that that impact other like decision makings and how other players from that area and how teams evaluate them.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I think if you go back thirty years, what the Dream Team started is really powerful and impactful, and you see that as an international scout. Uh, in fact, you know, look at the recent award winners uh, in the NBA. Um, you know, two-time MVP now, Nikola Jokic from Serbia before that. Uh, Giannis, you know, born in Nigeria, raised in Greece, uh, maybe the best young player in the league. Luka Doncic from Slovenia. Uh, Pascal Siakam, I believe he recently won most improved player from Cameroon. Uh, so it really is a, a worldwide game, you know, globally. We've talked about Dirk uh, on this show. We could talk about you know Yao Ming and other international players uh, over the last couple of decades as well. Um, so, so I think that's a good thing for the league. And, and I think, um, you know, w- one of the ways, honestly, that you see the rest of the world catching up to the USA and why it's so important to scout internationally is just watch Team USA play. This is not, you, you know, um, uh, Bird and Jordan and Magic and those guys beating Angola by 100 points in 1992. You know, these yeah. these international countries, a lot of the top ones are pretty good. You know, you watch Spain or, uh, you know, some of the top international teams. They, they really push the American guys Um, So I I think, you know, that'll continue. I I think the next region, honestly, that that the NBA is invested in is Africa, you know, where they have the Basketball Africa League. Um, You know, a lot of times, they're most of the time, historically, the top African players, uh, like Serge Ibaka, for example, have left, they played in Europe, and then they come over to the US. Um, So the NBA is really trying to develop the African continent. But yeah, if you're in that role, you're in the Adam Sandler International Scouting role, uh, you better have your passport ready with the extra pages in that book to get, that, you know, more stamps. Uh, and you better get a lot of frequent flyer miles because it's not like you're just scouting the U.S. or just going to Europe like you could in the past. Yeah, you're probably going to you know Oceania, they call it, New Zealand, Australia, Asia, and then probably sometime in, in, in the future, you're going to Africa as well.
0: My Lord. I want to talk a little bit about, and I know you got to get out of here, but I got like three more Um, about teams that are looking to like trade their picks and they need immediate impact guys, a current role player. I'm thinking about Portland specifically have promised Dame that they're going to retool a lot of chatter about them trading that pick to get OG and Anobi or a John Collins and, and the disinformation campaign now is alive and well that they're going to keep that seven pick. Um, Help me understand why a team would go one direction. We're going to trade the pick uh, and get a, a current role player that's, you know, we need to win now. And then they do an about face and they keep that pick.
1: I think because Trista ultimately is an executive, your job for the franchise is to do what's best given what's available, right? You can want to do whatever. I mean, every executive in the league would love to put together, uh, you know, a super team of all-stars at every position. That's obviously not realistic. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, like in life, the, the, um, you, you only make the decisions that are in front of you. You can't force something that's not there. So yeah. I think Portland probably does want to trade the num- number seven pick. It seems like they have told Damian Lillard, to your point, that um, you know, th- this is not going to be a-, a long, drawn-out rebuild. He's in his 30s now. He's made a ton of money. He's an all-NBA player. He's going to the Hall of Fame someday. He doesn't have the patience for that. Yeah. Nor order to be prudent for the trailblazers to keep Lillard in a blazers uniform, if they're going to do that, you know, it makes right. sense to, uh, to get young players and draft picks and things like that. Um, so that's, but, but the challenge is, you know, you don't want to trade the seventh pick for just whatever, you know, you know, for anybody, if he's not going to impact winning, um, you know, the, the other school of thought is, okay, you know, we, we'd prefer to trade the pick. Uh, I'm, I imagine the blazers have a, a list of players. They would trade the pick for, but if you can't get one of those players, you know, l- then let's try to draft the best available guy we can. Uh, maybe he shows out in summer league and, and, builds value there and we could trade them, you know, later this summer, even into the season next year. Keep in mind the trade deadline's not till February. Uh, so those are the decisions that take place. Um, and, 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 you know, on draft night, that's why the best executives, the best teams are flexible. I think one of the best recent examples of that is Golden State and the maneuvering they did with D'Angelo Russell first and then uh, with Andrew Wiggins in the pick. Um, you know, I, I don't think that was something that they necessarily could have Predicted in advance, but they gave themselves that optionality and flexibility, and it culminated in Wiggins being maybe the second best player on the team yeah. that just won the championship.
0: Yeah, that was a wild uh, turn of events, man. For him to turn into Maple Jordan after being, you know, somewhat disappointing in Minnesota, it goes to show you that, you know, Steve Kerr said that, you know, any that the majority of NBA players could be impact players if they were in the right situation. Uh, do you think that's true?
1: It's not something that we discuss enough. Um, situation, role, fit, um, and, and what I would say, Trista, is there are only a handful of guys in the NBA that, in my opinion, are that one A alpha guy that you know you hang on the marquee, uh, you you sell tickets. Uh, they, you know, people come, visiting fans come to see that guy play. There aren't many of those guys. There certainly aren't 30 of them. And so, if you're Andrew Wiggins, who, as you know, is is backstory. Son of Mitchell Wiggins, former NBA player, one of the anointed ones from a young teenager. This kid was the number one player and potential NBA star. It's hard to live up to that pressure and those expectations, especially when you are drafted number one by Cleveland and then traded you know, for Kevin Love to, to Minnesota, and the Timberwolves and their fans expect that. So I just think of it from Wiggins' perspective, going from the guy who's expected to be the guy and lead Minnesota championships, um, and obviously the Timberwolves are well short of that, he gets traded Um, you know, as a quote unquote disappointment in the eyes of a lot of people to uh golden state in fact it, and if if uh you know i'm not saying that's pick on wiggins but keep in mind that minnesota threw in a pick that ended up being jonathan kaminga the seventh pick in the draft along with wiggins gives you an idea of his value at the time right uh to now he's the fourth guy in State. he's not the guy anymore that's that, we know who that is that's steph curry the best shooter in the history of the game uh but they also have draymond green and clay thompson who are also head of the hall of fame someday so now wiggins can just be himself he can just play his role he's not the focal point he's not the guy that everybody in the media and the fans wants to hear from. He's not the center of the defensive game plan. In fact, it's probably not even the second or maybe probably the third guy in the game plan. when you're playing against golden state and he's thrive, you know? So like, I think that's what Kerr is referring to. It is situation. It is opportunity. And the teams that usually win have that, you know, one a alpha guy at the top and then everybody falls in line behind him.
0: I think one of the most complicated evaluation decisions, I guess of this draft seems to be Chet, right? Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, seven-footer, uh, elite shooter, elite shot creator, elite passer, defender, really good shot blocker, probably one of the the most unique unicorn-type players that we've seen, so they say, right? But he's 195 pounds, has all the tools. Uh, my I guess my question to you is do you think that Chet's frame – can functionally work at the NBA level with this full toolbox of skills if he does not put on another pound.
1: No, he, he needs to add weight. And, and this is why one of the reasons why the job is so hard. I think, at least in my opinion, clearly Chet Holmgren has the most upside of any player in this draft with his size, his length, his shooting potential, his shot blocking. I, I think he blocked three and a half shots a yeah. game bag in 26 minutes um you know he can be a unicorn but is he going to be healthy is he is he going to make it so to speak and we've seen guys um with unusual bodies um you know i don't want to scare anybody's fishing orlando magic fans but greg odin yep. uh, you know, broke down um you know recently there's some questions i think valid questions about chris Depp's porzingis and his long-term health um you know is check is going to be one of those guys or is he going to have a successful 10 or 15 year uh career and honestly trista that's par- par- part of the reason the job is so hard that as an executive, you really have to rely on your medical staff, your, your doctors and trainers, sports scientists. Uh, I imagine the magic, in particular, probably OKC as well, has put Holmgren through a battery of tests and gotten his medical information and, and dissected it. And, and it, it really, it's a, like anything else; it's a projection. Is this guy going to hold up? Is there anything chronically wrong with him? And then it's you know it's like building a house with his frame. How much can you add to it before it potentially crumbles? Or Falls apart. Um, yeah, so I think those are legitimate questions. Let me put it this way: I think if Chet Holmgren's body were you know solid, like he'd be the number one pick for sure. Um, but I think that is a legitimate question and a reason why you may see Jabari Smith go off the board if Orlando doesn't want to take that risk.
0: Uh, last last question about Jaden and Ivy. Um, for him, my I guess, and, and what I've read too, what I've seen, what I've read is that he has a ton of skills physically, right? But and very explosive athlete. But the, the one question mark is his decision-making ability and a bet on him is really truly a bet on whether you can develop him into being this really good decision-maker, a playmaker and find the ability to, to drive and kick well, right? He's made some pretty bad shots in the tournament, kind of taking bad twos and threes when he can make the open look. Um, so I guess the question is, how do teams evaluate on the front end uh, whether a player you can you can do that with them and whether they're they're capable of getting better on the IQ and decision making side?
1: Yeah, a lot of it's the, the in-person scouting and the film work. You, you know, you really want to get technical and break it down, uh, especially the pick and rolls. is You know, that's such an important part of today's NBA game. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's decision-making. And one of the things we did when I was GM of the Suns is when we met with players, uh, we would pull film clips of their games and then have them talk us through what they saw what they were thinking. You know, obviously there's some good plays mixed in with some bad plays. You want to see how a player thinks the game and, and how, how he, you know, talks through it. Um, and then you also, frankly, you have to evaluate the whole roster And the coaching staff and things like that as well, because if a player was used a certain way before getting the NBA, but you're not going to use them that way. uh, Keep in mind, usually, as you you know, Trist, especially compared to to Big Ten basketball at Purdue with Ivy, uh, the NBA game can be faster. It can be more open. Uh, It's actually less physical. I think that's counterintuitive to some people, but there's less contact on on the ball handler. Um, So that's part of the reason I'm I'm, I'm a fan of Jaden Ivy. I really like the kids' potential. I think with the NBA, now with hand-checking basically disallowed, whereas a defender, you can't really put your hands on a guy I think it's going to be really hard for people to stay in front of that kid and that's why you know I, I see shades of John Morant you're right the decision making has to improve uh, I see flashes of a young John Wall he just moves at a different speed with the ball and given his background too keep in mind his mother in Yale cool. uh, was an excellent player uh, coached with the Grizzlies now the head coach in Notre Dame this kid's a, you know comes from an athletic family and a basketball family and, and, and watching him play and seeing him interviewed he seems like a pretty sharp guy so for me just from afar I, I think he'll be able to figure it out I think he has a lot of things you can't teach, and he seems certainly smart enough and willing to learn the things you can't teach as an NBA team.
0: One follow-up. Is that what you saw with Devin? Devin Booker?
1: Uh, Some similarities. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, Devin didn't have the freaky athleticism. He had the beautiful shot um i think what stood out to us more than anything trista was the competitiveness i mean we saw the shooting at kentucky but then when we brought him into our gym for a free draft workout the hyper competitiveness he didn't want to lose a drill nobody could stop him and then when we did some two on two or three on three in particular uh, you saw some of the ball handling and playmaking that if you go back and watch the high school film it was there but that was not his role at kentucky so that's part of the reason the job is hard right if if you just watched him with the wildcats you say well he's an excellent catch and shoot player what else can he do? Well, he was first-team All-NBA guy. He can do a lot, but uh, that wasn't obvious at the time. Uh, really, that pre-draft process helped to solidify that he was the guy, and luckily he was there at 13 in the 2015 draft.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how situations sometimes can throw teams off the scent. I think Duke is really good at hiding players um, to what they can be. I think Paolo could be a star. It just was kind of used in a, in a different way than maybe he'll be used in the NBA. But awesome stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you giving me... A plethora, a swath of your very valuable time. I hope we can do it again soon.
1: Anytime, Trista. Always great to be on with you.
0: Thanks so much. Appreciate that. That was Ryan McDonough, former GM of the Phoenix Suns, assistant GM of the Celtics, former international scout, current Odyssey in NBA and basketball insider. Awesome stuff. Like, I'm going to go back and listen to that and listen some more. So I'm, I'm really happy that he gave us his time. I actually am out of time. I got to run as well. I'll give you guys some more post-draft insight, uh, quick wild cards, things that I think might or may not happen. Um, I still have some things I want to say about Pat Baldwin and Shaden Sharp and Jeremy Soshan and, and some others, but thank you to our guest, Ryan McDonough. He was very generous with his time. Uh, find us on the podcast if you want to listen to that back wherever you get them. That's the Heat Check. Uh, that is all the time that we have for Heat Check. We will be back Friday with a live episode recapping all the draft news Follow us from Heat Check as the season comes to an end and free agency begins. Do not forget to download, subscribe, tell your friends, every single one of them. Please follow us on social at at this heat check and at Trista Crick on TikTok.